today's episode, a discussion on child welfare advocacy and anti-black racism in Canada, an interview with Rebecca Fauchelet-Luke from Positive Choices Consulting. Welcome to Exclusion, a podcast that explores all things equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Exclusion is brought to you by Canadian Equality Consulting and Biarg Consulting. Hi, everyone. It's Alicia and Marcy here. We have a special guest today on the Exclusion Podcast, Rebecca Fauchelet-Luke from Positive Choices Counseling. So thank you for joining us to discuss the important work of Positive Choices Counseling and tools to help you cope while working from home with children. And we'll once again be recording in dual mediums. So this discussion can be found in both the Exclusion Podcast format and through our YouTube channel. And we'll post a link in the resource notes and on social media for you to be able to to find both recordings. And we have recorded this episode on June 3rd. Uh, We had been planning on recording this episode for a while and, uh, and then the world's completely changed. So we will also be kind of threading in and discussing Black Lives Matter and the importance of anti-racist allyship. And as always, in the spirit of respect, reciprocity, and truth, we acknowledge that the podcast is being recorded on the traditional territories and oral practices of Treaty 7 Region in Southern Alberta and Region 3 Métis Nation. We acknowledge all nations, Indigenous and non, who live, work, and play in these lands, and to all those who assist in their stewardship for generations to come. So before we get started with our interview and introduce our incredible guest, we wanted to first and foremost acknowledge our current world and the importance of advancing the Black Lives Matter movement. So we have all seen the multitude of examples of systemic racism in the U.S. um, with recent murders of black men by police. And we've witnessed, you know, the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, Ahmed Arbery, um, just to name a couple. And it's a very common reaction to think that, you know, it's better in Canada, it's less severe in Canada. Um, you know, it's not very common here. But, um, but in reality, that is far from the truth. Um, there's been murders of Dondre Campbell and um, Regis Korczynski Peckett, most recently by police in Canada. Um, and you know, people of color and black people and indigenous people experience, still experience racism daily. It can be overt through public acts of violence, um, but it can also be really subtle, like implicit biases and uh, subtle microaggressions. And um, it's important that um, to know that this sort of systemic racism has been embedded in our institutions and in government, law, education, uh, even the child welfare system and the child advocacy system, which we'll um, be talking about with our guest today. Um, so just before we get started, Alicia and I just wanted to reiterate that Black Lives Matter, period. And we all need to commit to continuous learning and to accelerate our journeys to becoming an active anti-racist ally. So I hope you will join Alicia and I on that journey. We're really excited about our guest today and to learn from her. And here's a bit of her background. So our guest, Rebecca Fauchelet-Luke, 
is a registered social worker and the Child Welfare Advocacy Program Manager at Positive Choices Counseling. She holds a BA in Sociology and Women's Studies from Mount Royal University and is a recent graduate of Dalhousie University for her Bachelor's of Social Work. Rebecca stays up to date on the latest child welfare research, attends training and workshops to enhance her skills, and she's an active member and part of the editorial team for the National Institute of Forensic Social Work. Rebecca loves to give back and volunteers her time and experience. She's currently part of the Black Youth Project Steering Committee, which is a new youth initiative project through Action Dignity Calgary. She's also part of the Safe at Home Working Group, which is a pilot project through Rowan House that aims to look at alternative ways to address domestic violence by removing the abuser from the home. Rebecca uses her life experiences, education, and passion for social justice to inform the work she does with families. She aims to use her privilege and position to advocate for and empower her clients. So through her work, she hopes to influence policy and organizational changes that will ensure parents and children have access to equitable resources so they stand the best possible chance of being a healthy family unit. So thank you so much, Rebecca. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on here. First off, tell us a little bit about the type of work that you do at Positive Choices Counseling and maybe a little bit about the journey you've had up until now. So I started at Positive Choices last year in January actually as a practicum student. And then I, I officially started working there um, in July. So, um, you know, we, you know, work with families that are navigating the family law and child welfare systems. So we do um, parenting coordination, rise visitation and parenting programs, and as well as child welfare advocacy. So, you know, our work is really, you know, grounded, as mentioned, you know, in my bio, um, and ensuring, you know, parents and guardians have, you know, access to um, equitable resources and advocacy and support as they navigate this system so that they're able to have, you know, those healthy homes and, and keep their children, you know, with them as well, too, um, because we know that, you know, the legal system is challenging, you know, to navigate. Um, it's costly. Yeah, you know, the thought of me having to go, you know, have any legal problems and pay, you know, $500 an hour, you know, without other stressors. So, you know, we do find that when people are going through the legal system and often marginalizes already vulnerable populations. And, you know, that's really one of the reasons how positive choices actually started. So, um, you know, we're a small team. So it's myself, Melanie Carefoot, who's our fearless leader, um, and Kayan Layler, uh, who does our supervised visitation and um, parenting program. So Melanie is a clinical social worker. She has her master's in social work, and she um, worked for Children's Services for many years as a team lead, um, as well as a manager at Adoption Options. So she retired in 2012, but um, a, a lawyer actually had a complicated child welfare file, so he asked her to consult on it. Um, and so then she opened up her private business and, and started offering, you know, that support. So I know you mentioned forensic social work earlier, and she was already actually practicing forensic social work, even, you know, without actually knowing she was doing that. And um, forensic social work, something I've you know, been practicing as well, um, is the intersection of social work and the law. So it's, you know, anyone that's working in child child welfare, family law, um, corrections, you know, um, the youth justice system, 
And really, it's the idea that the lawyers are able to address the legal issues. And, you know, as a social worker, then we're able to address those more complicated um, social issues and use our, you know, risk assessment skills to be able to make sure, you know, that the client is supported and able to um, meet whatever requirements um, to be able to, you know, for best outcomes and really working and understanding the legislation and the law and explaining it to the, in a way that clients able to understand. Um, so yeah, so Melanie, that's when she started doing the work. Um, she also um, mainly does our parenting coordination. Are you guys familiar with what parenting coordination is? No. But basically, parenting coordination is an agreement between parents that are you know separated or it's court ordered. So it's a form of alternative dispute resolution for high conflict parents, right? So obviously, not all parents that separate. <laughs> it's it's positive right so um melanie's you know being that she's a social worker she's really able to integrate those some of those strength-based trauma-informed aspects into that work to really um help parents communicate better where children are kept out of the conflict and um it's definitely keeps parents out of the court system um it's more affordable and it's just better overall for for the family to be able to work out some of those um agreements without you know litigating um so that's she mostly does that um and obviously she continues to mentor and and, and guide us you know with the child welfare like i said i'm really new to this and then we have Kayan. she does our supervised visitation um, and parenting programs. So when parents are separated and divorced, some of them do require, um, in order to have access to their kids, it needs to be supervised by an agency, right? And that's where we come in. Um, so we have supervised visitors. We mostly really only employ people with a you know child and youth background or social work students, um, because not only are we observing and writing reports that are used in court to help like increase access for parents or not require parents to have that supervised access. Um, there's also the component of parent coaching. So Kayan has a child and youth degree out of the University of Victoria. Um, you know, so she really, the way she trains our staff is to understand, you know, the ages and stages, development, and, and most of the parents are actually that are accessing our service, needing supervised access, our dads, right? And, um, you know, if we're kind of thinking intersectionally and about barriers, dads actually face a lot of challenges navigating, like, the family law system in terms of getting, you know, custody and access to their to their children, you know, and they experience a different types of um, mm -hmm. domestic violence, right, in terms of, um, you know, withholding access to, to kids. So, um, she's able to offer that um, additional one-on-one -on -one support to the dads on, you know, how they can, you know, for example, have a successful visit. So are you bringing, you know, the right toys? You know, you guys are both moms. Are you bringing the right toys? Like if it's a, if you have a three-year-old and an eight-year-old, what are you during, doing during that visit? Because you're going to engage with a three-year-old differently than you engage with an eight-year-old, right? So kind of really just giving, like, we want parents to succeed at this, right? Even with the parenting coordination, that's the that's the hope. Um, and so it really helps that we have that multidisciplinary approach that, you know, Kayan is not a social worker. Um, so we consult each other on files, right, just to have that well-rounded approach. Even though I'm a parent, I have a three-year-old, I'm still learning. I don't know everything about um, child development, and, and I have her on speed dial, 
And she's like, don't use bribes. You can't use bribes with a three-year-old. I'm like, but it works. Uh-oh, that's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and she's like, don't say, you know, that you're a bad girl, right? Just simple things that like, you know, that parenting, like there are a lot of things that we don't know. um, And and that really helps inform some of the child welfare advocacy work that I do in providing those um, those supports to parents. So that's really, you know, I guess like the work that we that we do. You've you've explained how diverse your group is, and I like here on Exclusion, we love to explain how diverse working environments, not just in people's backgrounds, but also experience education, how it can create a more inclusive working environment, and how you can have better outcomes. So I really love the approach that your group is taking um, to make sure you have different expertise to bring to the table to mm-hmm. to do what you do. Yeah. And with this in mind. What kind of groundwork do you do to help with allyship and recognizing power and privilege dynamics? Can you share a little bit about how you help in that side of things? Yeah. So, you know, like I say, you know, when you're talking about like power, you know, dynamics, uh, you know, and allyship, like, like our work, right, is we're doing critical social justice work. You know, we're constantly trying to challenge these big systems like the child welfare system, the the legal system. And, you know, like our values, um, you know, are, you know, advocacy, right? So being able to use, you know, our expertise to advocate for clients as they're navigating the system, you know, in meetings when, you know, attending children's services meetings where clients that maybe are on legal aid, um, taking that extra time um, because lawyers on legal aid, they might have a, a large caseload. Um, and so taking that extra time to really help clients understand what is, you know, what is happening, their rights and responsibility, um, you know, with the parenting coordination, Melanie, her rates are significantly lower than, you know, the rates of other parenting coordinators, right? So just being able to say, how can we really serve people that need the um that need this help and really focusing as well um, another value is education so really educating the clients on their rights educating the dads that go through our supervised visitation program you know again giving them those resources so they succeed right um with the child welfare advocacy again educating clients on children's services processes so sometimes we do like a learning circle to know okay why do you need why is having supports so important to children's services right by giving information and clients having that knowledge it really empowers them to be able to be more successful and know what is really happening and how to eventually advocate for themselves as well Um, our other value is you know multidisciplinary approach Right. Because when you're looking at power and and, and critical analysis of the system, you do kind of do need multiple perspectives to be able to assess like what is going on. So if you have the child welfare legislation, this is what is in the legislation. But how is that being implemented? So you have, you know, child welfare, the managers, and then there's the actual frontline caseworkers. So how does that trickle down mm-hmm. in terms of the legislation and how it impacts clients and how they're being, you know, when children's services intervene, what does that look like and what are parents experiencing, right? And in all this, a lot of times parents' voices are lost. Um, you know, often my clients express how, um, you know, helpless and powerful they 
they feel going through, you know, the child welfare system because it's the government. Yeah. You know, they're, <laughs> they're powerful, right? Um, so we... And, and they don't always consider, you know, the human aspect of things, right? And it's bureaucratic and you're moving papers along this larger system, right? And yeah, yeah, definitely. Like you're, you're, you're saying all the right things and, and, and it's, it's very, it's very true. And, you know, I think that like, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of stereotypes about, you know, who gets involved with, with children's services and why. And I know that when I, before I started working at, at uh, Positive Choices, I also, you know, held those same, mm-hmm. those same stereotypes, you know, so it's, you know, parents that, you know, are using drugs and, you know, they, um, they don't deserve their kids, you know, they're bad parents. Mm. Um, you know, I held those stereotypes. I didn't even know that when children are apprehended, um, uh, that there's a whole legal process, you know, they have to go to court, they need a lawyer. You know, there's this legislation with different timelines and conditions. And, you know, I think like it's really important that people understand the historical, political and larger systemic factors that do contribute to certain communities and individuals being more vulnerable to having CS involvement. Right. So instead of blaming and saying, okay, they're a bad parent, like look at the full context, that trauma informed, you know, context and. I think another thing that people don't realize is, you know, when it comes to things like criminal law. So obviously I'm not a lawyer. This is legal information, but again, forensic social work. Mm-hmm. Um, so in criminal law, right, it's innocent until proven guilty. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to child welfare, so, you know, there are four laws that really um, like govern child intervention in Alberta. And but like the main one is the Child, Youth and Family Enhancement Act. And it, it, you know, outlines some of the things it outlines or, you know, what are the causes for intervention, you know, like neglect, you know, physical, sexual abuse, failure to protect, emotional injury, that type of thing. It outlines legislative timelines. So the amount of time that a child is apprehended and in care, you know, six months, 12 months. Um, and it also is supposed to guide how caseworkers like plan and make decisions. So there's just some of, you know, a few things. Um, And then so just to give kind of a quick overview, you know, um, an investigation is made, you know, when a referral goes into children's services. Now, the um, majority of referrals and, you know, this information um, I was able to find in the Alberta Incident of Child Abuse and Neglect Report, um, or AIS. So that is um, a study that is designed to collect information about children and families who are investigated by child welfare services on a periodic basis. So if you're like a nerd like me with research, it's like really (laughs) interesting and fascinating, um, you know, that it, you know, looks at its standardized set of definitions from every jurisdiction in Alberta. um, And it looks at, you know, what are primary caregiver risk factors, you know, ages of children, household income, family dynamics. And yeah, so the last one was, was done in 2008, but there was one that was done in 2014, but it has not been released yet. I haven't been able to find it. You know, if some listens to this podcast and they know where it is, uh, yeah. send it my way. So they do this in other provinces. So actually, Ontario, they had one that was done in 2018, right? 
Oh. Um, so in Ontario, they're re- usually way ahead. You know, that they're kind of the standard of child welfare um, mm-hmm. work when you're looking, going back at child welfare, um, you know, history in, in, in Canada. According to that, that data, um, the majority of referrals actually come from police and schools. Those are the two main ones, right? Obviously, it, it has on there like health professionals, um, just, you know, maybe daycare agencies and other agencies. But the two main ones are police. And obviously, if there is a domestic dispute and a police go to the home, if there are children in the home, they have to call children's services, right? And then with schools, if a child discloses, they have to call children's services. So it could be something, and this has happened, where maybe a teacher overhears a child maybe say, you know, I got an F on my test, so my mom's going to beat the shit out of me. Sorry, I don't know if I'm able to. No, that's <laughs> right ahead. Bad words, right? Um, that's exactly how the kid would probably say it. So Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of think about, like, I grew up African, right? So I'm, I'm not, I grew up African, but I'm Zimbabwean. I am African. And yeah, like growing up, spanking, that was, uh, that was a form of discipline. But is that necessarily abuse right because there's obviously the criminal like outlining you know in Canada of yeah you know what you can use you know um in terms of physical discipline like no you know weapons like a belt like just open palm and it's you know but really across the board don't spank your kids (laughs) right but if maybe you have an immigrant family that just immigrated to Canada right so children's services is called this whole investigation is, you know, open and what implications that can be if they don't understand, you know, the system and, and the importance of having that cultural analysis. Or it could be, again, just that a teacher, maybe um, you have a child that, I don't know, who knows what's going on at home. It could be, you know, parent is struggling with mental health, lost job, mm-hmm. domestic violence. So maybe you have, they're coming to school without their lunch or they're not bathed or they have dirty clothes. Right. So, I mean, the teacher could could take the time um, to and I know teachers not to criticize teachers. You guys do amazing work, but they don't always have, you know, maybe the time to really kind of call the parent up and say, you know, what's going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we're, you know, talking about that racial analysis, like which parent do you think maybe some teachers are more likely to to call, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. face the. Why kid, you know, Billy, maybe they're going to call mom and say, hey, you know, I noticed Billy hasn't been what's what's going on or their behavioral problems versus maybe um, Mm -hmm. an indigenous or black child. Right. Like what assumptions are made about parenting and families based on one's race, Mm. Um, you know, so once that investigation, that uh, referral comes in. Children's services mandated to investigate all referrals that come in, right? Um, and so they're able to in, interview your friends, your family, teachers, doctors, anyone to determine, right? And imagine how intrusive that is. How many, you know, skeletons we all have in our closets in terms of our, our habits, our various habits as somebody, you know, was coming in and, and asking all those questions and they're, they're allowed to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so children's services don't actually, you know, going back to that innocent until proven guilty, they don't need proof um, that a child has been, for example, neglected, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's reasonable and probable grounds that a child is at risk, you know, of future harm, 
there's grounds to intervene. Um, and if it's if the investigator determines that the child is at immediate risk, they can apprehend without notice, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and when apprehensions happen, there's always police presence. So I've had clients who have had yeah. six cops showing up for an apprehension. Wow. You know, so you can imagine for, you know, Black, Indigenous communities of color that have been, you know, brutalized at the hands of, you know, impressed by the police force, how intrusive that is and how traumatizing that is for the parents and the family and where, you know, that distrust begins within the organization or the system that has taken your kids in that way. Now you have to work with someone, you know, they families don't end up working with an investigator. So if a file has to be open, it's then taken to a caseworker, right? Mm -hmm. But how then are you able to then try and start establishing that trust? Because it's like this person is part of the system. And that mm -hmm. person then determines, you know, what act when they can see their kids, how often, um, because, you know, when it goes to court, the court order is very open. So in terms of, for example, with our parenting coordination supervised visits, when, you know, in family law, when two parents separate, there's a parenting order, right? That determines like parenting time, like, okay, the child is with dad from Friday to, to Sunday, you know, for this many hours. And, you know, with a good lawyer and everything, obviously a parent can request certain things, right? And really mm -hmm. like have the lawyers advocate and push to have like a minimum, but with child welfare, um, on the court order, it says access is at the discretion of the caseworker. So there's no minimum, mm. right? So, I mean, maybe the caseworker could say starting out, you're only seeing your kid two times a week for four hours. Wow. How does that caseworker kind of determine that? Or is, is there like a, a matrix that they have to use no. or not really? We don't know. There's a lot of inner, you know, obviously internal policies and ways decisions are made. Because like I say, the, the SFYEA is, you know, some of those guidelines. And there is a policy book that is available online. Um, and obviously, Melanie has a lot of insight, right? She was a team lead. And a lot of times, no, it, it is not, you know, spelled out, right? So it depends on really the office the manager, because it's, you know, you have the office, you have the director of obviously that office, and you have managers and team leads, and then caseworkers, investigators. Mm. And so that's where we, we see inconsistencies, because we, we, we have client files from um, offices all over Calgary, right? Um, there's, you know, South Office, 14th Street, uh, Native Services, um, that is right downtown. There's Forest Lawn and McKnight out in the Northeast. There's Hunterhorn and Bowness. Um, so Airdrie, so depending on the office, you don't know. So sometimes yeah. you have, you know, and they're really great caseworkers that are awesome. They're trauma-informed and strength-based. And like, when I work with them, it's, it's great. You know, we're really like, things are happening, but then you have some of those offices, um, where, yeah. And maybe, you know, the, maybe the caseworker is great, but maybe the team lead, you know, you don't know. So maybe you have in at the South office, you have a parent that it's okay to smoke weed, you know? Yeah. Then you have another office where it's like, no, they get, the, you know, that's, that's off the table. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, you have maybe mm-hmm. two clients where they've experienced um, uh, domestic violence, but maybe one one case file, they're, you know, um, have that, they're working from that domestic violence perspective. You have another file where, you know, the, you know, the, the individual is then re-traumatized, mm-hmm. you know, because they're being threatened and saying, you know, um, if you, if you talk to your partner, you know, you're never getting your child back um, or not mm-hmm. really acknowledging the trauma and how, you know, the, maybe the individual and the mom has kept their children safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, you know, sometimes it, it does happen a lot, you know, that a mom, if she has experienced violence and maybe she's struggling with addictions and mental health, she's going to lose her kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, there, there, there's no guideline on, on some of the things on, on how that access is determined. Um, and so, you know, when, when you link back to, you know, I'm going to go back to kind of my, my role that I was doing with the advocacy work when I initially started, where as a parent advocate, um, that's why our work is so necessary and important. Mm-hmm. Um, because on one end, you know, they get a legal aid lawyer and, you know, obviously there's, overload with caseloads and things like that. So they're not always, they're lawyers, right? So they're not trained to be able to, to work with someone that is, you know, dealing with trauma and addictions and all that. So what we do is we're able to then sit down and say, you know, do you understand why children's services is involved, right? What has the, what, what has your caseworker told you you need to do in order to get your kids back? Is it clear? Because sometimes it's not clear, right? Do you need to do counseling? Do you need to go to treatment? You know, and obviously there's wait lists, mm. right? I'm like mm-hmm. COVID. I'm like, you know, yeah. just seeing those impacts. Like I have a client of mine who has not been able to get into treatment and she's supposed to do a three-month program. She's finally going to start in June. Wow. But then there are those legislative timelines that say the maximum time that a child's can be in care um, before they have to go for a PGO. So like permanent guardianship order where their parental rights are terminated. Wow. Right? So I'm really curious to, to see how Child Children's Services is planning on addressing COVID and how um, there are people that should have been in certain programs and counseling and that has been delayed. Obviously, there are some programs that are offered virtually, right? Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, but seeing how that goes. So, you know, you're having where parents are dealing with those strict legislative timelines. They're dealing with their own trauma and they're dealing with their grief of being separated to their mm-hmm. kids. You know, I had a client tell me it's like, you know, they were having longer visits with their kids. So they're having like six hours um, and they're like, you know, mm-hmm. I give my, my child a bath, put them in their big pajamas and then I have to send them off to go back to their foster home. And she's like, I'm grieving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and as a parent, I I know that if my child was apprehended, I probably would not. Yeah, I'd be angry all the time. It'd be hard for me to sit across from a caseworker mm-hmm. and try and figure out what's going on. And then so when you have parents in meetings that are at times, you know, dysregulated or they become triggered and they're upset. You know, again, remember, I said when a child is apprehended, there's a court process. So literally everything mm-hmm. that a parent or guardian says and does is being written down and it can be used in court mm. right and if so you when have- you're under trauma 
And there's so much to unpack with all of this, whether it be our history as a country with apprehension of children. Like I think about someone who knows the history of their grandparent or family members that have been taken away, whether it be through residential schools or through the 60s scoop, or as you mentioned, um, the cultural barriers that we face. Uh, Alberta is a huge um, importee of um, people from all around the world. And with that comes different cultural backgrounds, different cultural norms Mm -hmm. that um, may not come across as understandable by, by some here or um, I can see how so much of this can compile. And, um, and then if you are someone who is experienced so much of these things outside of this system, just to have more added on with this system, it's like another system of compiling um, concerns yeah. and the trauma that comes with that. Like, um, yeah, my, my my son is a cancer survivor, and I know the trauma we have from that. And that is just one little thing in our life. I can't imagine trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma, mm-hmm. and the PTSD that you gain from that, and domestic violence, and like it's just so many things that can compile. And then you have to watch what you say, and you have to watch what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, my heart goes out to so many of the people that have yeah. to navigate the system no. in a tough time. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I mean, you know, the, the fact is, and again, going back to that, um, the AIS study, you know, the primary caregiver risk factors are, is victim of domestic violence, you know, um, mm-hmm. of individuals that are involved with children's services. And then next up is, you know, uh, little or no supports, and then mental health and addiction. So alcohol and drug abuse. Now, given those risk factors, then you add the fact that if that parent or guardian is Indigenous, if they're Black, if they're a person of color, recent immigrant, um, if they're low income and from a single-headed household, which as we know, obviously being on the podcast that I'm on, you know, poverty is gendered, you know, it's racialized. Yeah. You know, that yeah. all those things then compiled make them more vulnerable for coming in contact with children's services and challenges like navigating the system. It's almost like a checklist. Yeah. So, okay, um, you know, you're Black, domestic violence, so you've exposed your kids to domestic violence, failure to protect, emotional injury, you don't, you know, struggling with mental health, you don't really have a lot of family in the city or healthy supports that can help you when you, you know, when you need a break, you're on age, maybe you've moved houses a few times in the last year, your kids are having behavioral problems, maybe there's some you know, mental health challenges, right? Then you go to, you know, you go to the, maybe you're at the store or something, or your neighbor sees something and they call into children's services, right? Mm-hmm. Goes in. And I think that really kind of, you know, as we were talking about in the beginning, that brings me to anti-Black racism here, you know, in Canada. Um, and I like that you did name the Canadian, you know, men and women that have been impacted by um, police violence here in Canada, those names, you know, and like Andrew Loku um, and Regis, you know, Paquette right now, and she's Afro-Indigenous in Toronto, that's, that's a pending investigation. And I've been seeing that, you know, Canadian journalists have been hesitant to talk about anti-Black racism in Canada. They just want to focus on the U.S. Yeah. You know? yeah. Uh, and kind of create this narrative. And, 
you know, I, there's a book, you know, and I, I know I send it to you to add to your resources that I, I recently bought. And it's uh, Robin Menyard's book called um, Policing Black Lives, State Violence in Canada from Slavery to Present. And I've lived in the U.S. You know, my I'm from Zimbabwe, as I say, so I immigrated to the U.S. in 97. Um, I didn't move to Canada till 2007. So I went to, I'm, I'm going to be 34 this year. So I went to, high, you know, elementary, high school there. And so I know what it's like in both places. And we're not like the U.S. We're different, but we still have a problem, you know, and, and Canada has its own long history of institutionalized and systematic anti-Black racist policies and practices, mm-hmm. um, you know, and being that, you know, I'm Zimbabwean and coming to Canada in 2007, I have had to do my own learning about Canadian history. I'm still learning. I have clients, obviously, that are Indigenous, that are First Nations. And so I have to educate myself on how I can better support them. So even though I'm Black, you know, and I I belong to a, a group that, you know, is, you know, marginalized, I'm in a position of privilege, right? When I'm working with with my um, Indigenous clients, right? I'm sitting on the other end of the table. I have the education. You know, I don't have to worry about my kid being, you know, taken from me. Like, I have anxiety. You know, we talked about the anxiety I had coming into this meeting, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's only maybe uh, a few years ago that I actually started going to therapy. Um, you know, earlier this year, I started um, medication, you know, and um, my parents, live in the city. I have a great partner because, you know, I, when I was doing my social work degree, I was, I was actually 12 weeks pregnant. And then I started wow. my degree in 2017 <laughs> yeah. and I gave birth March, um, sorry, I gave birth March 30th, 2017. And I went back to school in May. So I was doing my program while I was on mat leave with a newborn. I really wow. don't. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. It was so hard. I really, I wanted to give up, but like, yeah. I, you know, my parents do work obviously, but I could, you know, say, Hey, can you, can I drop her off for a few hours so I can study? And I told you my, my husband travels for work sometimes. So he's gone mm-hmm. during the week and on the weekend I can drop her off. You know, if my anxiety, if I'm struggling with that, I had that help. Mm-hmm. I could take a break. Right. And I didn't have to worry about my mental health being, used to assess whether I'm capable of parenting my daughter. So, and that really informs the work that I do. And so, you know, I didn't learn about residential schools or the 60s scoop or missing a murdered indigenous woman until I took a women's studies class in Edmont Royal. You know, um, I also had to learn. Well, I can tell you, we grew up in Canada and we also did not. Well, learn that's, those what I'm learning. that's what I've yeah. learned. That's what I've learned. Like people don't, you know, don't acknowledge that. And, <laughs> And so, and it's wild to me, right? The last residential school in Canada was not far from where I grew up in, and I didn't know it existed. And it closed in 1996. Yeah. I mean, that's appalling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, it, it makes, you know, it's, it's, it's appalling, right? I also just, you know, recently have learned as well about like Black Canadian history and Black Nova Scotians, mm-hmm. um, you know. And Another Africa. thing I did not know about. Yeah. All mm. I knew about Canada, honestly, before I moved to the States is like, I thought people lived in igloos. Like, I didn't <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. I like, I mean, when you're in America, it's so like, you think America is everything and it's like yeah. the on earth and nothing else is this. 
I didn't, I think maybe I knew there was Toronto, but Alberta, like I, I didn't know anything. Right. So like, again, I'm, I'm still doing that learning to educate myself. Right. I'm not, I don't put it upon, you know, black Canadians or my indigenous clients to like teach me. Right. Like mm-hmm. really like as a social worker, I'm very humble in the way I approach my work. And I'm like, what do you need? You know? And I'm like, if I, if I mess up, like, let me know. Like if I say mm-hmm. something that's off, you know, I'm here to really like advocate and push, but so I, I'm, I'm doing that learning. And so in, in this book, and I really recommend you guys read it, like I'm still working through it. Right. But mm-hmm. she covers everything from slavery and segregation in Canada and many people, including myself. Um, I didn't even know there were segregated schools in, in Canada. The last one actually closed in 1983 in Nova Scotia, right? Wow. So most people just know Underground Railroad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and and they don't know anything, you know, but so, and so she continues on and she covers, you know, anti-Blackness and law enforcement, the correction system, you know, the over-representation of uh, Black people in, 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 in prisons in, in Canada. Yes. Right. Right. Um, and and anti-blackness in the education system mm-hmm. you know um like i am you know i follow it sometimes in toronto everything that's happening with that and even in edmonton there have been some issues that happened um you know with the with a mom and her young son and a d-rag and and oh yeah that's right yeah. that's that's alberta everybody exactly that's yeah. alberta exactly yeah. so you know and it's and funny how we forget these things like exactly. that was not that long mm-hmm. ago Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but so much has happened since that th- this type of thing gets lost in the in the mix of everything. And but we can't. It still happened. No, that's no? true. That's true. And I think like reading that book, what is what you know the author basically you know has has said is that um, this kind of erasure of anti-black racism has been intentional, right? Um, and and it, it's done on purpose. And that, you know, in, in Canada, unlike the U.S., and I'm reading this from her book, actually, she says, you know, the, the systemic collection of publicly available race-based data is rare at the federal, provincial, and municipal levels. So even in my role right now as, you know, child welfare advocacy and recently just doing more program management and, and development, I also have Googled, like, Black children in care in Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been able to find anything again, if I'm wrong and, and someone knows where this stuff is, let me know. Um, but, you know, Ontario obviously is doing that work. They're doing the, the race-based analysis. You know, I've been really inspired by the One Voice, uh, One Vision project in Ontario, where they really um, have done the research and work to cater, you know, child welfare toolkits for, you know, Afro-Canadians because they're overrepresented in, in Toronto. And, you know, there's the Black Nova Scotian social workers that, um, advocate for black children to be placed in black foster homes so and I know you guys are research nerds right and it's like without data you know yeah. it's hard to yeah. assess where the we are very big on data yes <laughs> yeah. like, I'm you know Kian and Melanie get annoyed with me because I'm like guys we need to evaluate we need data we need to collect this yeah yeah so what, what does this mean you know where do we need to change you know those in terms of those evidence-based approaches that are one of our values so it's like if there's no data, if we are not able to address issues, it can create this false sense that there's no problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the US has the problem, we don't have the problem. And when I was reading through the, you know, the AIS report, it does make the distinct 
the distinction between indigenous. So it breaks it down to First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and then non-indigenous. So non-indigenous is white, Caribbean, African, Filipino. We don't know. Yeah. And that's in Alberta. So I don't know how many black children are in care. Right. You Hmm. know, compared to the overall, obviously, like, population of... um, Right. So you don't know the percentage of, of the children versus the population, for example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I think that is all like, obviously, you know, as Robin put it, it, it creates this multi, multicultural, racially harmonious utopia that mm-hmm. Canada is. And, and it's a narrative that immigrants find you. It's something I bought into when I came here. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and again, doing that's why I'm so passionate about, you know, child welfare advocacy and the work that I do, because I know how hard it is to be a parent. You know, it's it's it is the hardest thing that I'm going through, and and it's it's emotionally and mentally draining. You know, like I said, I'm mm-hmm. in therapy. You know, where I'm trying to work out my own trauma so I don't project that on my child, right? Um, mm-hmm. I utilize Kian to understand child development and what is an age-appropriate conversation. Like, what's okay to talk to a three-year-old versus an eight-year-old. And these are all things that parents that are involved with children's services, they're assessed on this. They essentially have to be perfect parents. And when we think about policing, as Robin says, like, and the overrepresentation of Indigenous, um, you know, First Nations, Black children in Canada's child welfare system, it's not accidental. They're the most policed. They're the most surveilled. And, you know, Alicia, when you talk about those gendered spaces, right, and and Mm -hmm. environments, in schools, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in, in communities, there are certain communities that have more cops than, you know, does elbow, you know, does the yeah. home elbow drive and the Mount Royal, do they have as much cop presence, you know, yeah. on, right. Um, if mm-hmm. you have, you know, a black mom, like I say sometimes I'm like, you know, I know I can go out looking a hot mess and no one is going to question, you know, my parenting. Right. But maybe there's a mom who's first nations, right. When she's yeah. in the doctor's office. And she's tied her babies in crime. What assumptions are made about her and her parenting based on her appearance and based because she's Indigenous? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's a really good point. And thanks for raising it. And there's one other um, resource that I'd just like to bring our listeners' attention to, too, is, well, Alicia and I have talked in previous episodes about this tool government uses called GPA+, Plus, Gender-Based Analysis+, Plus. but there's a really good tool that the city of Seattle has created. Mm-hmm. And it's a racial equity lens and a racial equity toolkit. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how well they've been implementing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't seen any evaluations of it. But on surface level, like it's a good resource to look to as maybe a, as a potential starting point for government to kind of understand like how do, how do you start integrating these considerations into, yeah. your, into your work. But Yeah. So, and there's actually a video that just came to my attention yesterday. Uh, it is uh, Calgarian, and it's from a group called Canadian Cultural Mosaic Foundation. And they actually did a film, Calgary-centric, on racism. I believe it was in 2017. But it, it's really great because it talks to many Calgarians about what they face every day, um, just within society. Um, it also talks to quite a few experts. One of the more interesting things that I got out of it was um, this mosaic that we talk about, Mm -hmm. this multiculturalism that we're so proud of, 
there's a reason why we have it. And a lot of it has been throughout the generations, we bring people here for, for their labor. That's why they come here. Mm-hmm. So um, we have this long history of exploiting um, the labor of immigrant people. And whether that started with our Asian brothers and sisters with the railway mm-hmm. to uh, Ukrainian immigrants mm-hmm. to um, obviously, gosh, like look at, we were going to talk a little bit about COVID today within the, with childcare, but it even ties into the fact that COVID's hit so many racialized people mm-hmm. harder than, than others. And a lot of those people work in the low paying jobs that we've specifically brought them here for, for their labor, whether that be meatpacking or Mm -hmm. personal care workers. Mm -hmm. And you think about um, being at a new country where you are working ridiculously hard um, (sighs) with uh, very low pay. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that pay is going back to a country that you might be from, right? Mm -hmm. Now add the dimension of family on top of that, right? Where it's two parents working um, a lot of the volunteering I do within the STEM community is with um, underserved kids. And I can tell you, like, their parents are some of the hardest working people <laughs> I've ever met with the multiple jobs. And even the kids that I work with, they've already got part-time jobs by the time they're, um, you know, early teens and entrepreneurs and trying to to make things uh, ends meet in Canada. So all of these dimensions go on top of what we're talking about here and are just more ticks on the boxes that you're mentioning. Yeah. Uh, right. And, yeah. and I know we wanted to talk a little bit about COVID today and maybe how you, you've mentioned it a little bit already about how some parents can't get the training that they need. Mm-hmm. What are some other components that you're noticing, whether it be the school system, like the fact that sometimes the, um, the children are noticed in the school system um, that's not there anymore. We know the domestic violence is increasing uh, due to pressures. Um, how has that affected some of the work that you've been yeah, doing? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's it's so much. I think we're still gonna see the long kind of the long term effects of of COVID because you know I had some child welfare clients that were supposed to have trials, right, to kind of determine if that permanent guardianship is going to be either terminated or their kids are going to be returned in different hearings and their trials that obviously the court system is backed up, you know, so, you know, the courts aren't even running. I don't think, right? Yeah. Yeah. So even before COVID, right? They're backed up before. Yeah. (laughs) They always seem to be backed up. I think some are operating virtually, but I don't. They are doing virtual stuff. But I mean, if you're trying to book a trial, right? Before COVID, it was like eight months. You know, it's not like you can just book a trial and it's in three months. It could be six to eight months. So that's how backed up it was before COVID. And now imagine, you know, after, after COVID and, you know, with Melanie's parenting coordination, it's great that she's been able to do things virtually because obviously um, you have parents trying to, you know, negotiate, juggle, you know, some of those roles. You know, That's but- if they have digital means of doing that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Sure. yeah, exactly. With, with co-parenting, you definitely have um, in terms of like the family law aspect, I don't do that as much. It's more Kayan and Melanie, but obviously we still consult that. You know, you have some people wanting to parents, co- parents that are co-parenting that are withholding access. So mm-hmm. maybe, you know, me and my husband are separated and I'm like, I know you're supposed to have, you know, tonight on the weekend, but I don't think you're following, you know, COVID rules. Like, I think you're having people over, so I'm not dropping her off. Right. And wow. you, can't go to, you can't just go to court to then address that, right? Right. 
so and then there are people that were paying maybe child support a certain amount and now they're not working and so what that means like there's just so many you know different aspects and you're right in terms of you know individuals that you know um, are experiencing violence at home right and having to to, to do self social distancing and and self-isolating and not being able to access you know um certain services right um you know i'm i'm trying for us to be part of the calgary domestic violence collective because a lot of the work that we do you know with families you know domestic violence is at the center um of that work and so i've sat in on different webinars to to just keep up to date on how um you know the domestic violence organizations that do that work full time like how they're trying to address and, and support you know, parents. And I think, you know, when it comes to like COVID and parenting, like, you know, we have our Instagram um, page. So Kayan, you know, she's been posting some really great resources. So definitely people can go on there, you know, where she posts like different activities that you can do with kids. Mm-hmm. She's helped me, you know, my daughter was in her day home three days a week. Um, and now when daycare opened up, she's in daycare, but she was like, you know, if you're doing learning. So instead of, it doesn't have to be sit down at a table, be structured, take your kids out on a walk, right? Like Mm -hmm. give a toddler and be like, what color are the trees? You know, how many Mm -hmm. rocks, like if you're doing numbers, like pick up four rocks, like, you know, make just, and you're getting exercise, you're getting fresh air, you know? So she gives those tools and really trying to assess, you know, she, she said, it's not about work-life balance right now it's about work-life integration right Mm -hmm. so just seeing like you know uh what does life look like now um you know have some kind of routine it may not be what it used to be don't have those high expectations on yourself because i think a lot of times you know we as as women you know um as mothers we we have these high expectations on ourselves Mm -hmm. and you know one of my favorite (laughs) books is by dr shafali the the conscious parenting, I refer to it a lot. Um, it's it really challenges, you know, um, the type of you know the way I want to parent. But you know, she she has a quote that says, "Often it's the adjustment of our expectations rather than the real reality itself that's the hurdle that that we have to leap." So it's like with COVID, yeah. you're not gonna work, you're not gonna be as productive as you were before COVID, you know. And unfortunately, like I'm blessed that I work for. I work at an organization that allows me that flexibility. Like I will sleep in and I will set my meetings in the afternoon because I'm not a morning person, you know? Um, and and I just set my schedule because sometimes it, it's hard, you know, it's exhausting with COVID and seeing the constant news cycle, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I know other people don't have, don't have that privilege to where they can be flexible with their work. Right. They're kind of like they have to log in. It's 930. They're logged on, you know, and they're then doing homeschooling. I don't have to homeschool my kids. Right. Um, yeah. So really just be easy on yourself. And, you know, I'm sure most kids are having more screen time. It's not the end of the world. Can say they're not going to be developmentally, you know, challenged or anything or anything like that. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I know it's a tough time. Just lower those expectations. Um, and, and, and try and, you know, reassess, you know, in terms of the roles at home, obviously, like, um, how we can take turns, like how we can do this, because we're both working, we're both having to parent. And I know, obviously, not every parent um, has that privilege to be able to kind of speak up and, and say, I need help, 
you know, um, and I need more, but, you know, there are a lot of online resources. There's distress center and different resources that, you know, um, individuals can try and safely access to be able to get that, that support. Well, thank, thank you for all that. Mm-hmm. And you, you're answering a good chunk of our questions. This is good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I get passionate and then I start talking and the circle back and it's and, all good. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for all this advice and for, and for being so open and, and sharing your expertise with us. No, thank you. Thank you. So I, I'm not sure on our timing, Marcy, but I think we've uh, mm-hmm. probably close to hitting our, mm-hmm. <laughs> we yeah. can talk for a very long time yet. I have no doubt, <laughs> <laughs> but was there anything else that you wanted to make sure our listeners um, knew? I know next week, Kiana is planning on, on doing like a series on, you know, how to talk to to kids about uh, about race and and racism, you know, and looking at the different. Awesome. Systems. That's mm-hmm. great. Right? Because the way that you're going to talk about that with a three-year-old, you know, is yeah. going to be different than a 10-year-old or, or a teenager um, and looking at like mental health with, with some of that. And especially for white parents, I know they are like, well, what, what do I say? <laughs> you know, I, I was actually at uh, a co-op. Um, one day and um, just shopping and there was about I think like a four-year-old you know little cute little white kid with his parents and he's like looking at me and I mean I knew what was coming right and he looks at me and he's like mommy you know she's brown look at that brown lady and I was like yeah hi and the the parents faces were bright (laughs) And they were so embarrassed. I'm like, no, 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 you don't say that. You know, she's just a nice lady. And I'm like, no, but I'm brown. <laughs> you know, he's four. He's like, you know, and, and I'm like, it's okay, right? Like, it's not, you know, that idea of like color, but like, that's not the right approach. And I'm like, yeah. he's four. He, he does not, he's not had those like adult projections of like what race is and it's a construct and all that. It's, you know, it's just simple. Well, mommy's skin is white and, you know, this lady's skin is, is brown, Right. And even my, my daughter is three. So, you know, sister's husband is white. Right. And so recently she's like, you know, mommy, she loves brown skin girl by, you know, by Beyonce. And she's like, mommy, you know, um, I'm a brown skin girl. You know, and I was like, yeah, you're a brown skin girl. And she's like, Auntie Sharon is a brown skin girl. And I'm like, yeah, she is. And she's like, what about Uncle John? You know, because that's his name. And I was like, well, what, co- you know, what, do, what color is his skin? And she's like, um, it's white you know, and then that was it. And she was happy and she moved along. Like, and so, and that's, you know, that's when it starts. Like she's three. So she's curious. She's starting to know people's skin, you know, is different and and that's okay. But I think, you know, it's not just, it should not just be a responsibility of, you know, black parents, you know, indigenous parents, you know, people of color to have, for us to have to educate our kids about this is how you can stay safe and like, you know, hands up and don't cause problems and behave this way. And, you know, I think really what I would like to see kind of going forward, given the climate that we're in, especially in Canada, that it's really time for white parents, you know, to kind of really do that work and, and talk to their kids about about race, you know, and mm-hmm. Google, like Google, there's YouTube, there's Google, yeah. there's so much free information. There's like library cards are free, right, to, to kind of do that work. And I don't mind questions, but I don't want a question when you actually haven't done the work. Right. Mm-hmm. Like read something and then say, you know what? I don't really like, what does that really mean when it's like race is a construct, right? Like mm-hmm. then kind of engage in that and no one is perfect. Like 
I think people are afraid to make mistakes or say the wrong thing. If you say the wrong thing, then say, hey, you know what? I messed up. I say the wrong thing, right? I'm new to this. I'm still learning a lot. I say that to clients. I say that, you know, I don't know, maybe I did say something wrong in this whole presentation. And and so you got to take ego out of it, right? It's not about you. It's not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, that's all I can really yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I thank you for that. And um, I know that as a scientist myself, I, uh, you know, you learn about science and you go to school and, and you learn a certain way. And I remember when I went back to school to do my master's um, in the social sciences, I took a class called the philosophy of science. And um, there were times in that class where I literally like my mind just went, right? Like, the fact that so much of what we do is a social construct, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's so much of our society that of course we can change it. We built it. Yeah. So if we built it, we can unbuild it, mm-hmm. right? Like just because it's the way things have always been, it doesn't mean it has to be the way it is. And that, so that under getting my mind out of that very scientist facts, 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 you realize, well, even a lot of the science we've done has been built on social constructs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you have to take the context of the data and unpack it a little bit and see where if, if we've created structures in our society that the base is wrong, Mm -hmm. then the structure's wrong. And that it's okay to say it's wrong and that we have to restructure it or change it. But that's one of the things I try to teach people is like, what is a social construct? Mm -hmm. And if it is a social construct, it can be unconstructed yeah. or changed mm-hmm. or reconstructed, yeah. right? Yeah. So I think that's a, a big takeaway to remind everybody to, one, learn what that term is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Know where, when it's be, you know, what is a social construct? And from there, we can, we can change that. Like even the concept of blackness and whiteness um, in Canada, we have a history of making certain things like what is white? Right. Um, but early on, um, Ukrainian Canadians were not white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Like we change what mm-hmm. is white, mm-hmm. which means we can it doesn't need to even be there. If we can change it, it doesn't mm-hmm. need to exist in the realms of discriminating and putting barriers on people because we have ch- we have mm-hmm. changed that concept for as long as we've been here. Yeah. You know, you're, and you're so right. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, we all have lots to learn. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to discuss with us and our, our listeners um, in a challenging time and to tie that into how this affects the kids and um, the social systems that, that uh, pertain to so many families that are struggling there. So thank you so much for this discussion today. Yeah, no, you know, thank you guys. I, I had a lot of nerves. I was texting my husband, my sister and my mom, and they're like, positive affirmations, like, you, you know, and yeah. you guys have, I mean, thank you for really just creating this, like, space where, you know, I can just, you know, speak openly and, you know, with emotions running high, um, and, and for us to just engage in this, like, I, I definitely really appreciate, appreciate that, and, you know, I'm looking forward to having more conversations and, and working with you, Marcy, you know, because mm-hmm. trying to, expand as an organization and continue to do the child welfare advocacy work that we do. I mean, we want to just make sure we're doing it right. So kind of making those 
connections and collaborating even with your work with gendered spaces, you know, Alicia, Alicia, as we kind of build our organization, you know, mm-hmm. we, we criticize these systems. And I want to just make sure that as we're creating and, and growing that we're not recreating those like oppressive um, systems, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think lastly, I know those guys will if I don't say it, that, you know, obviously we offer parenting coordination, reach yeah. out to us and absolutely visits. We, you know, have a, a head of soft reopening as of June 1st. Oh. Um, so kind of taking those measures in. Um, so yeah, just, you know, we have an intake form <clears throat> online and, and reach out to us if, if you're needing the services or for a consult and, or you want to talk child welfare advocacy, you know, anyone who's listening, if, if they know any exciting work that's really happening, like out, out, out west out here, because there's a lot happening in, in Ontario, Nova Scotia and all that. But yeah, reach out to me, please. That I'll be excited to, to work with you. So yeah. Well, thank you. Mm-hmm. So I've been frantically writing things down. <laughs> so I, I've tried to find some key takeaways from our discussion today. And um, I do recommend that our listeners look up your group. And if you know of anybody who could use the support uh, to definitely to look up up the group and, um, and to seek you out, because I think it's important work that you're doing. Now, uh, some of the interesting things I thought that you mentioned today is um, it goes into the unconscious bias and the stereotyping that Marcy and I do. It's just that we all have them. And when it comes to the social services system, um, we have to check our stereotypes that we have of who would use the system. And instead of blaming parents, maybe mm-hmm. try to understand some of the systems that they're in and some of the difficulties that they're in uh, to better understand some of the traumas they may have faced. Um, and to remember that these are families that we are talking about here. There's children involved, but also a family unit involved. And we need to um, make sure we remember that always when discussing these topics, the importance of data. Yeah. <laughs> data is important. Yeah. Yeah. And but not just data, but how how we um, how and what we we track, mm-hmm. and also access to data. And sorry, what was the data from 2014 that you're trying to get your hands on? Just so we can throw uh, that out there again. The Alberta, the AIS, so the Alberta Incident of um, Child Abuse and Neglect. Perfect. So if anybody knows where that is or how we get our hands on that, that that would be really great. Yeah. And then just. Putting to remind everybody that when it comes to any of these topics, that um, it is on us to do our homework, mm-hmm. that we need to be the ones to learn. It is not up to those of a marginalized position to be teaching us in a privileged position to remember what privilege is and that um, all of us can have privilege in, in various forms or in, in different ways and to understand the privilege that you do have, what you can do with it and know that there's things you don't know and that's okay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's okay to ask questions, but you have to come from a heart where you want to know and you want to learn um, Mm -hmm. for sure. And just also in this current timing that we have to adjust our expectations Mm -hmm. of ourselves, of our children, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially since we're all together a lot now. And uh, maybe put at the door some of our high expectations of ourselves and know that this is a challenging time. We'd like to remind everybody, this is a world pandemic. Mm-hmm. It's not a 
Alberta pandemic or Calgary pandemic. This is a world pandemic. And to try to uh, put yourself um, in that and understand that it's okay to not know uh, mm-hmm. what to do or how to do it sometimes. There's lots of resources out there. We'll put some on here for everybody. Um, but just, you know, adjust your expectations. And it's okay to have good days. It's okay to have bad days. Yeah. It's okay to mm-hmm. seek help. So, yeah. so yeah. those were my takeaways. I hope I grabbed everything yeah. uh, that's of importance. So, so thank you again for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, these issues that we've been talking about today are complex mm-hmm. and, you know, multidisciplinary and they can seem, you know, overwhelming um, because they're so huge. But, um, but just to build upon the earlier points that, you know, these were constructed by humans and they can be dismantled by humans. And just to acknowledge even that this, that our systems are broken and our systems are biased, you know, it's, it seems obvious because, you know, at the time when they were built and how they're being maintained, I mean, we live in a society that's still largely, you know, racist and patriarchal and, and sexist. So of course there's, there's biases with them. Right. And there's issues. Well, and if, so. if those are the things that we could, like I said, we created our structure on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes right through the system. Um, sorry. I'm going to mention there was something Seth Myers mentioned this week about how, there's this connection about bad apples. Oh, there's just a few bad apples. Oh, yeah. Bad apples, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And how um, if you were going to an orchard and you were going to go pick some apples and um, the owner of the orchard said, well, there's a few bad apples out there. And you said, well, how bad? We'll kill you bad. He'd be like, there's something wrong with this orchard, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the bad apples or the bad examples or the bad systems are structured from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, we can't just say, oh, just it's just a few bad apples or a few bad examples. No, we have to look at the whole system and we have to see how those apples were grown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The root causes, the roots yeah. of the apple tree. <laughs> <laughs> look at that. I like the layers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I, and I, I guarantee you that he had very good writers of a multi-dimensional and multicultural background that helped him write that. He did not do that oh, yeah. himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. And um, just to remind our listeners, don't forget to check out the resources section of the podcast to find the references and uh, and different um, resources to for you to learn. Um, and once again, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Buzzsprout. Please hit subscribe to be notified when a new episode is released. And we would love it if you could leave us a rating or a review. And let's continue the conversation. Let us know what you think. Um, You can ask us some questions. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And also we're on LinkedIn. And we'd love to hear from you. And if there's an episode that you would like to see that we should cover, please always reach out to us. We'd love to, to talk to you. And if you want to be a guest on our show, we can definitely discuss that. And you can also find Positive Choices Consulting on social media. So where can they find you? Yeah, so we're on social media, um, Instagram and um, Twitter. Um, We're on LinkedIn as well as Facebook. Perfect. We'll find those links and make sure they get in our resources. Yeah, I'll send them your way. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for the discussion today. And uh, yeah, until next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much.